0: Thank you, Beth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us in so many ways. Uh, Lord, as has been mentioned already, uh, just the fact that we can continue to to meet as a church in this way is truly a blessing uh, to continue to be connected, to to continue to be able to express love for one another and to learn from one another and to pray for one another. And then uh, to be under the ministry of the word, Lord, in the midst of this time, Lord, is truly a blessing. We praise you for that. Now, Lord, as we come today to this text of Scripture, Lord, give us eyes to see. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us. What we have not, Lord, would you give us. What we are not, Lord, would you make us. And allow me, as your messenger, uh, to simply be faithful to this text and to allow you to speak, Lord. It, It is you that we want to hear. And, Lord, we ask for your help and your strength In these things, in your precious name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but when we started the book of Exodus, um, I wasn't exactly anticipating 2020 to be like it has turned out. Um, None of us really did. And when COVID-19 came upon us so quickly, the weekend of of March uh, 14th, we all knew that we were in for a ride, didn't we? And we kind of endured it and kind of actually some of us kind of panicked over those first couple of weeks trying to figure out what it meant to shelter in place. And then, of course, uh, the horrific incident with George Floyd's death uh, took us and captured us and the subsequent racial tension and the peaceful protests and the the wicked rioting and looting and the abuse from angry mobs, as well as the numerous incidents of police brutality, all of that hit us very hard. And so we were getting hit from kind of two sides. And you probably went through a a myriad of emotions, anger, fear, um, empathy, sadness, anger. (laughs) compassion, anger, frustration, even cynicism in there. And it, if we're honest, it has not been easy for any of us. In fact, the conversations we've had to have have been both difficult and necessary, and God has sustained us. In fact, I think this has been incredibly good for the church. It's forced us to realize what the essential basics are and what it means to be a church and maybe reveal something about uh, our, our shallowness and our need to hunger for God and for his truth. So God has sustained us and he's guided us through this extremely important book, this book of Exodus. And so far in this book of Exodus, we've seen a number of things. We've seen the joy of Israel's fruitfulness and prosperity as God's chosen people. That's how it begins, from 70 people to this numerous amount of people living in the land of Goshen. And we've also seen the wickedness of oppression that comes from Pharaoh and the Egyptians enslaving the Israelites because they perceive them as a threat, beating them, enslaving them, abusing them. And we hear the cry of anguish from the people of Israel, crying out to God for rescue. We've seen God patiently raise up a leader in Moses, a man who struggled, who was fearful himself, and we've seen him grow and develop in his role as God's messenger, as well as the mediator that Israel needed at that point in time. We've seen God's mighty signs and wonders and miracles in the plagues. We've seen God's people gather in homes for a Passover meal, having painted the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And we've seen God's favor on Israel in providing gold and silver and clothing from the plunder of the Egyptians that was given to them freely by them. And we've seen suffering, struggle, pain and anguish. We've seen God's people liberated and leave Egypt. It's been an incredible story. And as a result, in going through Exodus, we've encountered some very uncomfortable but necessary issues and concerns. We've had to deal with the injustice of slavery, the pain, the suffering, the sorrow, the abuse, and the despair that it brings. We've had to to see God's people sheltering in place. Yes, they were gathered for a meal, but there was something daunting out there, that if they went outside, that they would suffer and even suffer death. We've seen a a nonviolent, peaceful procession out of Egypt as God's children leave and are liberated from their slavery. Today, we will see them cross the Red Sea in a final demonstration of God's deliverance. And then in chapter 15, the next time we get back to Exodus We're going to see the Church of Israel singing together the praises of the Lord. And friends, you just can't make this stuff up, can you? I mean, it all screams to us that the Word of God is always relevant to what we face every day. And friends, honestly, if I wanted to come up with a series of sermons that rightly address the issues we're facing today, while at the same time being rooted in the text of God's Word— I don't think in my mind that I would have landed in this text. I think I would have been tempted to be a cultural preacher that tends to force a text into the mold of current events. But friends, I am convinced that what God's people need is to hear from God through his word, not from a clever, trendy, culturally current and confrontational pastor. We're all hungry to know what God says and what he desires for us to think, to say, and to do in times like these. But friends, God has had his plans for our church family all along. I mean, he has prepared us, hasn't he, as we went through Job to understand what injustice was and what suffering looked like and how to respond to that. when we don't know the whys of it. We walked through James, and we also dealt with the struggle of trial and, and even the issues of preferring one person over another or a certain people group over another. God has been preparing us, and he continues now to, to nurture us in the right ways. And it's a reminder for us to read and study God's word daily and allow it to shape and fashion our thinking, our wisdom, our passions, and our discernment. Now, our text today... Is one of a few well-known Old Testament stories, events in historical, uh, in history that might want to say non-believers even know about. Others would be, of course, God's creation and then God's creation of Adam and Eve. And then there's the flood and, of course, David and Goliath and the the, the birth of Jesus and the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Maybe Peter walking on the water, but certainly this one. Is Israel going through the Red Sea. And so we're familiar with it, and typically what happens with familiar texts is we, we kind of uh, just rest on the fact that we've heard these stories before, we know what's going on. And you certainly would be right to think this story is about the people of Israel, because it is. But it's much more than that, friends. It is the story of the God of Israel, the I am who I am, Yahweh, Who is jealous to receive glory. So, yes, the text is about Israel's deliverance, but much more than that, it's about God's glory. It's about the God of Israel receiving the glory that he is due. And so, this text, I want to summarize by saying it is the glory of God revealed in delivering Israel. Let me show you from the text why I'm saying what I'm saying. Look, if you would, please, at verse 4. There it says, I will get glory over Pharaoh, this is God speaking, and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That's verse 4. Then notice verse 17. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, chariots and horsemen. And then verse 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So God himself is saying that the one thing that wants to be on display here is his glory. This is his goal in this text. And we're going to see here the glory of God displayed through his providence, through his faithfulness, and also through his Justice. And so we begin here by looking at the distress of God's providence. The distress of God's providence. Now, you remember what happened here. God tells the children of Israel that you are to turn back and you're to encamp by the sea rather than going forward. And then what happens is the Egyptians see that the Israelites have stopped. And they have turned back and they're encamped by the sea. And, And friends, God's providence is often distressful for his children. His plans don't always make sense. And in this situation, God has a bigger plan that he's seeking to accomplish. He knows what he's doing, and we've got to be convinced of that. And he is fully in control. But that isn't what it looks like from a Hebrew perspective. And many times that isn't what it looks like from a Christian perspective, that God knows what he's doing and that he's fully in control. He has purposely guided Israel through Moses to turn back and to encamp near the sea. They are now sitting ducks for Pharaoh and his army. Why? Because God told them to do it. And it is a distressing Thing because on a human level, it doesn't make any sense. But that is often God's providence. We don't always understand what God's doing and why God is doing, and we can be distressed over the fact that he is doing that. So just listen to the response of, of Pharaoh here when he finds out the predicament of the children of Israel, and this is verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And he said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers Over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped them by the sea. Now, friends, this is supposed to overwhelm us. We're supposed to feel the full might and power of the Egyptian army. See, they're having second thoughts, aren't they? What are we doing letting our cheap labor go? How stupid can we be? Let's send out our military might and let's correct this mistake and let's bring them back. So they come now with their chariots, their chosen chariots and all the other chariots, horses, chariots, horsemen, army, and they overtake them. Now, from a human sense, from a human perspective, Israel and the mixed multitude with them are toast. They're boxed in. They're vulnerable. They're looking death or fresh bondage in the face, much like what Ed was talking about there uh, with Abijah and uh, the other armies surrounding him. They're they're stuck in this place, and 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 death or enslavement is only what waits them. So what we see here is that Israel is helpless and hopeless but this is what God had told them to do there is nothing that they can do except to listen to God and to obey his instructions and it's from the helplessness and hopelessness of God's chosen people that God's glory now will be seen you see in our distress where the glory of God's providence Uh, Sorry, it is in our distress where the glory of God's providence is at work. Listen to how Pharaoh speaks of this, or the prophets, I should say, speak of this event. This is Isaiah 43 and verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. What kind of God is the prophet looking at? What is he describing here? He's a God who makes a way in the sea. He's a God who makes a path in the mighty waters. And so what he's arguing for in the book of Isaiah is this Exodus God. He makes an impossible way of escape. So the distress of the Israelites is the stage to display the glory and power of God's providence. Now, if we turn to the New Testament, we find Paul saying similar things. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and verses 8 and following. Here's what we hear. Here's what Paul says. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. you get the depth of their affliction, right? Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You get the argument what he's saying. Even if we die, we know that God can raise us up. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So even in the New Testament, we have this, this wonderful reality that the distress of our lives is the very stage To display the glory and power of God's providence. I was reminded this week of a story about the revival that took place in a town called Cambuslang, which means Long Bay, in Scotland, which is about six miles outside of Glasgow. Well, the people were eagerly sitting under the preaching of the word of God and were confessing and repenting of their sin. They were hungering for the word of God to be preached. They were gathering for times of prayer. Uh, People were coming from all over the area to hear the word of God proclaimed and taught. There was a hunger for God, for his truth, and to be reconciled to him. And the spirit of God did his work through the preaching of his word. And people were bowing down in worship, crying out to God in repentance, and embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who was it that was using, that God was using as the vehicle to bring this revival? Uh, was it uh, the, the famous preacher George Whitfield, uh, the famous preacher of that century? Well, Whitfield did come eventually to this place after the revival broke out, but it actually was the pastor of that, uh, of that town, campus Lang, by the name of William McCulloch, who was known locally as an ale preacher. Now, that might conjure up all sorts of images for you, uh, you know, that he comes into the pulpit drunk and stuff like that, but that's not what is going on here. What is an ale preacher? He's the kind of preacher that is so dull and boring to listen to that when there is a conference where they have multiple pastors that are speaking, when it's time for him to get up and preach, the men look at each other and say, oh. It's time to go to the pub or to the local brewery and get some ale, okay? So he's the kind of guy you just don't want to listen to because he's so dull. He's so boring. You can just imagine what it was like. Uh, I see McCulloch's up next. I guess it's time for some ale or maybe bringing it more into our contemporary context. It's like going to Together for the Gospel Conference where they Don't tell you who's speaking until that very moment where it's time for that person to get up and speak. And you're thinking, is it going to be John Piper? Is it going to be Mark Dever? Is it going to be David Platt? What? Who's this Rod Phillips guy? I've never heard him before. Okay, guys, let's get out of here. Let's get some lunch. See, the truth was that McCulloch was a seminary professor of theology and languages and so by nature of what he did he was technical he was detailed he was careful uh, he was particular in his style and his manner and his delivery in the pulpit was rather dry and somewhat dull listen to what McCulloch's son said about his father he is not a very ready speaker not eloquent his manner is slow and cautious. Now, if you're circulating your resume as a pastor to try and get a job, this is not what you want to have listed there, okay? He has little gift for the pulpit, not a ready speaker, not eloquent. He's slow and cautious. But here this, friends. It was through this dull, cautious, unexciting, and dry preacher that God had chosen to work his will, If there was one thing that was true about McCulloch is that he opened the text of God's word and he let it speak. And it is through his simple parish preaching that God's word went forth boldly to change the lives of so many and to cause a revival to take place. Hear this, friends. God takes what seems humanly impossible and turns it for his glory so it is in the distress the helplessness and the hopelessness of god's providence that god's glory is powerfully on display and that is true in the old testament that was true in cambuslang in scotland and that is true today so having seen then this, this first idea here, the distress of God's providence, now we want to turn to what I'm calling the determination of God's faithfulness. And here we're going to see the reaction of the Israelites and we're going to see the reaction of Moses. And as we consider the reaction of the Israelites, I want you to notice, first of all, that they're full of fear. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, their crying out to the Lord was not a cry of faith, but of distress. They were pushing the panic button, so to speak. I wonder if any of us who are listening to the sermon in the recent months have pushed the panic button, having to encounter or endure a virus that few people really seem to to know or understand, uh, where the experts And there are many of them we know disagree, change their minds, paint terrible pictures where stores are closing, jobs are lost and livelihoods are ruined. Or wondering if you might find yourself in the middle of a mob of rioters who have no concern for the welfare of the people and the property that they encounter. I mean, I think there have been times where we've just been concerned and we could have pressed a panic button to say, "Okay, God, what's going on here? Friends, fear and panic can cause us to think, to speak, and to behave in ways that we never knew we would. But not only are they fearful, they're also full of sarcastic questions. Now, here's what they said, and there's really four questions, and you can hear the sarcasm in there. You can hear just the way that they're speaking to Moses with these words. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt right in other words why have you done why have you uh what have you done to stir up the hardness why did you do that we were doing perfectly fine is it not this what we said to you in Egypt leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians in other words don't Stir things up. But you wouldn't listen to us. Here we are. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It would be better to be enslaved. Just think through that. Slavery and what they knew, because that's what they knew, would be better than being stuck here between an army and a sea. They're full of fear full of sarcastic questions. Now what's going on here? Let's let's let scriptures interpret scriptures because there's a lot of references to this particular event in scripture. And I want to turn our attention to Psalm 106, in particular, verses six through seven. It says here, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider Your wondrous works; they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Just let that settle in a little bit and help you understand what is going on. There's three truths that are revealed here about what is going on in Exodus 14. First, they did not consider your wondrous works. This is referring to the ten plagues. In other words, they didn't fully absorb what was going on there. They didn't consider it. They didn't, they didn't ponder it. Secondly, they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. This is talking about the hesed love. This is what is rooted in the promise that was given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then ultimately, you know, Moses re- receives that and is carrying out the wishes then of what God is doing. And finally, we see, and they rebelled at the sea, the Red Sea. So their attitude here is described by God himself in his word, as an attitude of rebellion. So they're full of fear, they're full of these sarcastic questions, and they're full of rebellion. Man, when you look at what's happening here and you allow scripture to interpret what is going on with the Israelites, you have to ask yourself the question, are these the people who will become a great nation, the people of God? Are Pharaoh and Egypt the only ones who are being hard-hearted? Now notice the response of Moses. How does Moses respond to the people's fear, to the panic, and to the rebellion? He comforts them. And he comforts them with God's assurance. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today shall never Uh, You shall never see again, never see again, never see again. Let that settle in. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I mean, it's packed, isn't it? Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. You could add there, and be silent. Friends, God has a plan and he is going to work the plan. Even if you are fearful, even if you are in a panic mode, even if your fear and panic bears fruit in outright rebellion to God, God will still be faithful to deliver his people. See, God, because of But he is a covenant God, is determined to be faithful to his children, regardless of their fear, regardless of their rebellion, regardless of their unbelief. Now, friends, that should be something that we rejoice over, because that is a description of us. And when we are lacking in faith, when we are full of fear, when we're in panic, when we're angry with God and we're, we're rebelling against what he says... God doesn't just say to you, he continues to be faithful to his covenant. Now, hadn't the people some basis for trusting God? Hadn't God promised them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would become a great nation, that they would enter into a land? This is why they're carrying the bones of, of Joseph, isn't it? had not they stood back and watched as God brought plague after plague to the Egyptians exactly as he had promised? Hadn't they been protected by God through it all, and in particular during the final plague where they they sacrificed a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts and heard the cries of the Egyptians as the angel of the Lord passed through and over them uh, to put to death the Egyptian firstborn sons? Hadn't God granted them favor to plunder the Egyptians and to leave Egypt as a victorious army? Yes, they had. All of those things are true. And friends, what they should have remembered is that God keeps his promises. What they should have remembered is that God can handle the Egyptians. He's proved it over and over and over again. And that memory should have generated trust to believe that God will do what he sets out to do. So as we look once again at Psalm 106, I want to I read Psalm 106, verse seven, but I also want to go into verse eight. It says, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. That's not good. And they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. That's not good either. But rebelled by the, by the sea, at the Red Sea, that's not good at all. But notice verse eight, yet, He saved them for his name's sake. You could put in there, for his glory, that he might make known his mighty power. Now friends, this is what we find, not only in the Old Testament, we find this also as we turn our attention to the New Testament. I want to briefly just highlight three scenes from the book of Mark. Mark chapter 4, in particular, verse 38, and around there, Jesus is with his disciples out in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm blows in, and Jesus is asleep in the boat, and his disciples are pressing the panic button, aren't they? And they wake Jesus up, and what do they say? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So The disciples are demonstrated, demonstrating a panicked and fearful faithlessness, and what does Jesus do and say? Does he, does he say, I'm not going to do a thing until you show me some faith? Go read some books on faith. Maybe go to some, you know, I don't know, TV evangelist type thing and get your faith right. Only then will you, you know, will I stop this storm. No, that's not what he does at all. In the face of the disciples' panic faithlessness, Jesus remains faithful. He's determined to be committed to his purposes and will. In Mark chapter 5, we find the the story of Jesus and his, his encounter with this woman who has an ongoing issue of blood, which not only drained her physically, financially, but also rendered her unclean. So this was not a good situation to be in. And when she sees Jesus, she touches the hem of his garment. This was this was not only just an act of faith, but it was also an act of superstition. Because they believed if they touched the hem of you know, a, 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 a rabbi or someone they considered to be spiritual, they thought that somehow some of the power that was in them would be transferred over to them. And so what does Jesus do? This woman's faith was not pure, but it was superstitious faith. It was real faith mixed with superstitious faith. Does he say to her, what do you think you're doing? Don't you know that I won't heal you unless your faith is pure? No, he heals her in spite of her superstitious faith. And he actually magnifies the real faith that she had that was behind her superstitious faith. You see that? Even with faulty, impure faith, God is still faithful to carry out his purposes. And then there's Mark chapter 6. And this section is all about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And of course, all these people had gathered and gone out into the wilderness to hear him teach. And he says to his disciples, hey, you give them something to eat. And of course, the disciples are looking around like, we don't have anything. And they're like, how could we even do that? Are we to spend two years wages and go buy them something from Safeway? I mean, you can imagine them just talking to each other and saying, you know, can't we just use like DoorDash or Instacart or something and get the food that way? Clearly, they were lacking in faith. But Jesus didn't throw his hands up in the air and say to the crowd, what am I to do? My disciples are having a faith crisis. So I think it looks like you're all going to have to find your own way home and enjoy that journey while you're hungry. No, God, because of his covenant, he's a covenant God, is determined to be faithful to his children, regardless of their fear, rebellion, and unbelief. And friends, that should cause us to rejoice. See, I I, I think sometimes we, we have this picture of Israel going through the Red Sea and they're all like dancing and happy and all this kind of stuff. That's not what Scripture says. They're fearful. They're panicked. They're in rebellion. And yet God is faithful, and he is determined to be faithful to his people. We sang a song today, He Will Hold Me Fast. First stanza, when I fear my faith will what? Fail. Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I can never keep my hold through life's fearful path. I mean, this is the frailty that we struggle with, isn't it? For my love is often cold, but he will hold me fast. See, this, we, we sing this truth. And this is what we have God revealing for us in this particular section. So now as we move on, the third thing I want us to notice, and this is a big section of the text. And that is the distinction of God's justice. God is going to exercise justice. And if you remember, this word distinction is not new to us. This is a, an idea or a word that has already come up as God unfolded the plagues. So, for example, when we, when we, when we get to the fourth plague, a swarm of flies, this is where God says, I will set apart The land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no storm of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And then we go to the fifth plague, uh, where the livestock die, and this is chapter nine, verse four, and we find it says there, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. You get the point. God is dealing with Israel one way. He's protecting them. But Egypt is going to be under his full-blown judging hand. And then in the final tenth plague, where, where all the firstborn die, chapter 11, verse 7, it says... But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So in similar fashion now, God makes a distinction in how he deals with Egypt and Israel. What's interesting here is you might even actually say that there are 11 plagues. There's 11 forms of judgment here. Because the pattern is very, very simple or, or similar, you have a, a similar pattern. Because you're going to find the word, you're going to have ultimately then the disobeying of that word or not listening to that word. You're going to find the judgment. But well, let's think about it. now how is this distinction played out? Verses 15 through 18, we call we find a distinct word. Verse 15: The Lord said to Moses why do you cry to me? Now, one of the things that's interesting there is that Moses is functioning as the mediator between Israel and God, or we should say between God and Israel. And he says to Moses, why do you cry to me? And what do we find is that Moses wasn't the one who was crying, it was the people who were crying, but because he is their leader, because he is their mediator, God puts that on his shoulders. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus goes to the cross, he reaches up to heaven and he says, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a cry there from another mediator, the mediator that matters in his time of crisis. Now, notice there's a pattern of the Exodus story, isn't there? God steps in to reveal what he's about to do, and he does it with words. He speaks to Moses at the burning bush and tells him what to do and how the various people, the Israelites and the Egyptians, will respond. Moses does it, and what God said would happen takes place. Then God goes to speak to Pharaoh. Sorry, Moses goes to speak to Pharaoh. And to say that the Lord God of Israel says, let my people go. And if you don't listen uh, to the wishes of the God of Israel, you will suffer consequences in particular in signs and wonders, which he is saying are the plagues. And Pharaoh says, I will not let your people go. So God then comes with the plagues. And if you remember the structure of the plagues, there was three sets of three, and then you had the final one. And the first two of each of those sets, Moses goes and says, God says, let my people go. And if you don't, this is what's going to happen, right? So you have this repeated over and over again. And then in chapter 11, we have the preparation for the 10th plague in the sense that God is communicating, this is what's going to happen. And now it happens again at the beginning of this section also. God is saying, this is what's going to happen. What we have here, friends, is a grouping of multiple short-term prophecies and promises that God makes and fulfills through his servant, Moses. Don't miss that. See, prophecies aren't always, this happened in the Old Testament, and it's fulfilled in the New Testament. God has spoken. This is what's going to happen. And then a short time later, it does. And it's just repeated over and over and over and over again. God is continuing to make a distinction through his spoken words. And and friends, God is still in the business of making distinctions. Now, they may not necessarily be physical in nature, but they are promises and prophecies about what will happen or how we are to live in light of the gospel. What does Jesus say to his disciples? In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then the apostle Paul would say, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So the distinction God is making is not ethnic distinction, but believer-unbeliever distinction in the church. Ethnic distinctions are removed, and God is Lord over all. There's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, rich or poor. We're all brought together as one because we are all in Christ and are the body and the bride of Christ, his church. My friends, that is, that is a message we need to hear. The church is the answer to what people are struggling with, around the world. So here God is saying, I am making a distinction between the sinful and wicked oppressors and my chosen people. Here's what's going to happen to Egypt, and here's what's going to happen to Israel. So we have a a distinct word, but we also then have a distinct presence. And the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the host of Israel. So even the angel of the Lord and the pillar of the cloud were, were being used now to give a visible presence, but also to make a distinction between here is Egypt in behind, I'm protecting Israel who is in front. So the Israelites could clearly see God's presence moving on their behalf and protecting them. And as we see, they will be protected by the walls of water as well as, the, uh, as from the Egyptians. But the Egyptians will not be protected. Now to get an even better picture of what's going on, we can turn to Psalm 77. You're not, not going to have this on the slide Um, But I would encourage you to turn to Psalm 77, and the psalmist is now pushing the person who's reading the psalm to realize that, that how you get out of your despair, that how you get out of your crisis is to begin to remember God's mighty deeds, who this God is, what he has done, how he has acted in history. So Psalm 77, beginning at verse 16, and here we have just a colorful picture of what happened as Israel goes through the waters. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Just incredible picture of of what God is doing in, in, in causing the waters to be held at bay, but also promising his presence. And the psalmist there uses that wonderful expression, right? God's footprints were unseen. And friends, it's a reminder for us that there is a distinction between Uh, we who are God's children and those who are not, that God's presence is always with us, protecting us, guiding us. We may not see it all the time, but his footprints are there all over the place. Now I also want you to notice a distinction of justice. And we're going to focus now on Egypt's just judgment. And this will be found in verses 21 through 22, as well as 23 uh, on through verse 28. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them. On their right hand and on their left, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of the fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before uh, Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. I just want you to notice four things just from what we have in this text. Uh, First of all, the folly of Egypt's sin. Why would anyone take chariots and horses into a parted sea? What's driving them? And the answer is, it is their sin. It is their hard-heartedness of of the Egyptians, of Pharaoh, to, to push them to pursue Israel into the sin. See, friends, sin doesn't make us smart. Sin makes us insane. It removes all the sensibility from our hearts and drives us to imagine and act in ways that are illogical and are headed for destruction. This happens to people, doesn't it? This happens to people that we know. This happens to us. And when we watch it happen over time, though through conversations we have with them, through comments that they make, we realize that they are not thinking clearly. Their thoughts and actions are irrational. The road they are traveling on, we can see is leading to destruction and sorrow and suffering for them as well as for others that they love. And we ask ourselves, why would someone do such a crazy thing and throw away so much for just a few minutes of sinful pleasure? It's because sin doesn't make us smart. It makes us insane. Friends, we need to see the weight of that. Egypt just goes barreling ahead. They're not even thinking about what they're doing because they're so intent on capturing the Israelites. Secondly, the impotence of Egypt's might. In other words, there's a powerlessness about their their perceived strength. What this text is screaming at us is that Egypt and her armies were the mightiest of nations with the latest and greatest military technology and fighting equipment. Look back at verse 6. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. I mean, you get. All right, so there's some distinction between the kinds of chariots. There's Pharaoh's chariot, there's the chosen chariots, and then there's all these other different kinds of chariots, all right? So you have this, this, this idea of chariots and horsemen, and, and the chariots were like the tanks of that day, okay? This was a superior, if not the superior national force at that time. But friends, they are no match for God. And we see that when the Egyptians say, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. their powerful machines with their strong wheels are like twigs and leaves to be swallowed up by creation under the wrathful hand of God. And it's a reminder of that famous verse, isn't it? Psalm 20, verse seven, some trust in chariots and some in horses But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Next, notice the completeness of Egypt's judgment. And friends, this is is the heart of the matter. This is so important that we need to see it. If Israel is to be rescued, Egypt must be decimated. If there's going to be deliverance for Israel, there must be a destruction of Egypt. If victory is going to be complete, the enemy must be destroyed. If there is going to be salvation, there must be judgment and destruction. There is no peace, there's no security unless God's judgment is thorough and complete. When my wife and I were first married, we were living in a parsonage in West Seneca, New York, which is just outside of Buffalo, and we um, had just been married, and we woke up one morning and went downstairs to the kitchen and our kitchen was full of ants. I mean, they were everywhere and and these were not the small kind of ants that we get in our house today every once in a while, these little guys and stuff no these were carpenter ants and you know these are over half an inch thick and they 're they're they 're dark and they're they 're all over the place. I mean you know, you can pop and squeeze them they 're that kind of a thing, right. I mean, but they were everywhere. They were in the sink. They were in the cupboards. They were um, in, in the cabinets. They were on the floor. They were just everywhere. And we had to pull everything out of the, the cupboards and the pantry, all the plates and all the mugs and all the cooking utensils and containers. All of that stuff had to be pulled out of the cabinet. Now, it wouldn't have done if I went to my wife and said, you know what? It's all taken care of. I killed about 15 or so of the ants, I think, were good to go. That wouldn't have done, no. It wouldn't have done even to kill half of them. Who knows how many there were? But in order for us to have peace in the kitchen and in the house and for me to have peace in my marriage, we had to find all of them and, and root them out and kill them and clean up the mess. And only then could we put the stuff back in the kitchen back in the pantry and be confident that everything was going to be okay. Friends, you can't pretend that the ants are not there. Now see, there's no peace until the ants are rooted out and killed. And for Israel, God would bring utter destruction, utter judgment on Egypt so that there could be peace for Israel. Friends, that's what God is doing here with the Egyptians. He's pouring out his judgment on Pharaoh and his armies. He's utterly destroying them. Verse 28 says, God followed them into the sea and none of them remained. Remember earlier on, you will not see them again. Unless God destroys the Egyptians, Israel will not have salvation or deliverance that's why thinking about God's judgment, although it is a daunting thing, is actually good news. Psalm 96 in verses 11 and following says this: "Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it fills and all it fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest. Sing for joy before the Lord. Why? For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Friends, this is what we have to look forward to. The judgment of God when Jesus sits on his throne and every person who's ever lived will bow the knee before him and worship him and then he will judge their unbelief. And friends, that is good news because without justice, there is no good news. Without justice, there is only injustice and that is not good news. God judges the world righteously in other words based on his standards with equity and fairness he judges the people's uh, in his faithfulness in other words it's consistent with uh, with uh, his character and his attributes this is how God judges so God exercises his judgment against Israel but then we notice secondly Israel's merciful deliverance Notice verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. You, you get the emphasis of what's going on here from this. Now I have a couple of questions for you. Question number one: In what way did the people of Israel contribute to their crossing the Red Sea? And the answer is they contributed nothing. They didn't chart the course. They didn't hold the waters back. They didn't cause the ground to be dry. They didn't keep the Egyptians at bay. They didn't destroy the Egyptians once they had gone through safely. No, they were passive participants. It was God who was orchestrating the events. His footprints are everywhere. So they didn't contribute at all. But the next question is this. What did the people of Israel need to do in order to cross the Red Sea? This is a different question. And I've come up with a number of words that describe that. They needed, first of all, to listen. In other words, when God said, turn back and encamp by the sea, when Moses says, fear not, they needed to listen to what was being said. Secondly, they they were able to watch That's one of the things they were told to do, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And then at the end, they saw what God had done. Third, they followed. They were being led by the Lord and Moses, and that implies then that they needed to follow. They were journeying through the sea. Fourth, they trusted. I mean, the walls of water are on both sides. Egypt with their chariots and horses are behind them. The Lord is protected. And they had to trust that what God was doing was going to actually provide deliverance for them. And the final word is is, is they went. The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. So they were both passive and active participants. They contributed nothing to their deliverance, but their deliverance required that they do something. Friends, that's important. That's an important distinction to make here. In the same way, we contribute nothing to our salvation, to our deliverance. It's all God's doing through his mediator, Jesus Christ. But we must respond by faith and with true repentance as we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to say that salvation is all of God does not mean that we just... We don't do anything at all. It means that we contribute nothing to our salvation, but we must respond and we must respond by faith and believing in the gospel and what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Now let's draw our attention to this final summary statement that brings to light then the the mercy and the deliverance of Israel. Verse 30, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. I mean, that's, that's finality, isn't it? Here we are safe. Here is Egypt dead. Talking about the armies here. We're not talking about all the people in Egypt. We're talking about the, the armies that came through. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I want you to notice that the Israelites went from fearing Egypt in verse 10 to fearing God in verse 31. And that came as a result of this trial of journey, this struggle of God's providence, where God was determined to be faithful to his people in spite of their fear, in spite of their panic, in spite of their rebellion, to bring them to a place where they would see him afresh as their God and fear him. Now, friends, I want to finish with some concluding thoughts. These are not going to be on the screen, um, but these are some thoughts that just kind of captured me as as I was pondering this and wanted to leave you with something a little bit more to kind of push you. In times of crisis, when we can find ourselves struggling to come to terms with what God wants us to do, there's three things. Number one, don't run ahead of God. Don't run ahead of God. Don't be this person who's so overconfident in the, the, the circumstance that you're in, that you, you think you know what is right. You think you have all the answers. You think you figured it out. You're believing the first things that you hear. Hold on. Don't run ahead. Don't get ahead of God. Don't think that you are like him. Let him simmer in your heart and your mind for a bit. Secondly, don't lag behind God. Not taking the circumstances seriously, not taking the trial seriously, not alarmed with a crisis, just somewhat apathetic and carefree, seeking your self-preservation more than anything else, maybe experiencing fear, maybe experiencing panic. Don't lag behind. But the third thing is what we should be doing. Don't run ahead. Don't lag behind. But do seek to walk with God. Now, friends, that's going to require some faith on your part. It's going to require some trust on your part. That means you're going to have to face the difficulty that is before you. That means you're going to have to listen to him. That means you're going to be talking to him. You're going to be listening to him as you open his word. You're going to be talking to him as you pray with his word. It means being humble, being teachable, and being responsible. Now, friends... God has delivered us. We're, if, if you are one of his children, he has delivered you from bondage and he has set you free. You were in darkness, now you're in light, right? You, you, were, you were ignorant and now you have knowledge. Now friends, the, 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 this is a beautiful reality if you're a child of God. And yet even as a child of God, we can forget about God and be overconfident and seek to run ahead of him. We can be caught up with the world. We can be caught up with the things of the world and lag behind. And we need to live in this wonderful place of balance where we're walking carefully, thoughtfully, discerningly because we're feeding and meditating on God's word to give sense to what it is that God is doing, why he's doing it, and how he wants to do it. And to to figure out what our responsibility is before him to, to live our lives for his glory. And notice I said that, to live our lives for what? His glory. See, His glory is the goal. His glory is the reason we do what we do. I mean, if you grew up in a youth group, you know whether therefore you eat or drink or, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the goal. And just like we see here, God's glory is the central emphasis of this text. It is the central emphasis of our life to give him glory in all that we do. May we be those kinds of people that are seeking to live our lives for his glory, resting in him, trusting him, sorting through the things that we wrestle with, but doing it in such a way where we're giving him the praise every day. Lord, help us today to contemplate what it is that you are doing in our lives. Lord, we are a fearful struggling people, and at times we don't like what it is you are doing, how you're doing it, and even what you say. And so, Lord, as we find ourselves rebelling against you, even though you are determined to be faithful to us, Lord, help us to fight against the tendency toward rebellion, fear, panic, but Lord, to trust you and to learn from you, and to grow in you. And Lord, may this text be a reminder to us of your great power to deliver your people, but also a reminder for us to to stop and to listen and and to see who you are, and to walk with you as you lead us day by day with with challenges left and right and behind us and, and a future in front of us, Help us, Lord, to settle that and to rest in that and to glorify you uh, in the process. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.